Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. How many of you have had the experience of the, or remember the experience of the trauma of playing dodgeball or kickball at PE growing up in, in class at school? Y'all remember that? Uh, it's, it, and I say trauma because there's a, there's a lot there. There's that, you know, that like rubber ball that only exists in the world of dodgeball or kickball. And, and, and eventually you like kind of get mashed in the face with it at some point. Someone try to throw you out or you get hit or whatever. And it like... There's just an experience of that that like scars you to your soul that you probably remember uh, what, what that's like. And, and I think getting hit by one of those, one of those rubber balls, you know, in, in dodgeball or kickball, I think that is like a character builder. Like I think you really develop some intestinal fortitude if you've been mashed by one of those in your life. In fact, I don't know if I trust you if you haven't been really mashed by one of those at least one point in your life. Like I think it just makes you perhaps a better person. But I, but I actually think the biggest trauma of dodgeball and kickball, and strangely enough, they were trying to ban it a few years ago. I, I read about a school district in 2011 that tried to ban dodgeball, kickball, capture the flag, and horseshoes because they thought they were dangerous. But there was this uproar of parents who were like, no, you can't ban it. Maybe because those parents were like, I was traumatized by this as a child. I want my children to experience the same thing. But maybe the biggest trauma that comes with dodgeball and kickball in PE class was the team selection process. Do you remember how this goes? The PE teacher... Would, would, would pick two kids, usually like pretty athletic kids, and they would say, all right, you guys are captains, I want you to pick your teams. And then the team selection process started. Oh, I'll take Jimmy, I'm going to take, and then they, they go back and forth and they, and they take players. And it's cool if you're chosen first, because it means you are generally recognized by your peers as a very athletic kid and would be very useful on this team. So there's those kids that get chosen first, and then there's like that middle bunch, and then there's the kids that are chosen last. And I don't know where you were. This may be kicking up some stuff for you right now. Like we might need to, you might make an appointment with a therapist this week of what I'm saying right here. I don't know where you were chosen. I was pretty gangly, so I wasn't one of the first kids chosen, right? <clears throat> Usually, uh, you, you, know, you know it's bad if, if the word fine comes out before they, cho- they say your name. You know, fine, I'll take Barris. That's what it sounded like when I was chosen. <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm middle, middle to late rounder is how I was in, in, in dodgeball and kickball growing up. And so you'd get chosen, and like, <clears throat> it's not a great feeling, right? It's not a great feeling when everyone's choosing teams and you're like near the end. It's not, and, and the con- converse of that is, I suppose, it is a great feeling if you're chosen first. Some of you in the room would know what that's like, and, and that, that's kind of great. And I thought about that, and I was like, you know, as we get older, we, we tend not to play dodgeball and kickball as much unless we're doing the River City Social Club thing. But um, the, the wounds of that remain, and the, 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 the process of being chosen uh, still hurts, doesn't it? And, and, it, and it's just that the game changes. It's not kickball. It's like the, the process of being chosen first or not being chosen at all, like that, that stings a little bit in all areas of life. It, 
when, when, when a job chose you for a promotion or not, when, when we're dating, what that feels like to, to feel chosen by this person or not, when we're looking for a school to go to, the selection process, or, or maybe we get into school we want to go to, maybe we don't. Um, in friendships, you want to be friends with someone or maybe they don't want you to be friends with them. Like, that stuff <clears throat> doesn't get a lot better. There's still that feeling of, I love it when I'm chosen um, and I hate it when I'm not chosen. And I want to talk about that today, in particular in our relationship with God. Because I think there's an element there of, did, did God choose us, and did we choose him, and how does that work, that I think actually is important if we're going to talk about our relationship with God, which is something we talk about in this church a lot. We're in a series right now called Keeping It 100, and we're talking about the idea of keeping it real with God, having a, a real relationship with the real God, and what does that even look like? And in weeks past, we've talked about, hey, we got, our starting point for that is we have to recognize that we're pretty sinful people, that we're broken, that we've messed up. Understand that first, that when we, when we come to the table with God at, at, to partner with him, we don't bring a lot to the table, like we, we've, we've messed up. But then God initiates these relationships with us called covenants, some covenants in the Old Testament and then the New Covenant, which is a, another way of kind of saying the entire New Testament. God initiates these covenants with us, initiates a relationship where he wants to partner with us in life to do some things here on earth. And that's a, a beautiful thing and a, and a really great thing. And so we, we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. And I want to talk about today uh, what it looks like, the, 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 what choice kind of how it, that fits into the whole, uh, whole conversation. I want to answer some questions. Like, like one, one question that you might have from time to time is, does God really love us? I want to talk about that a little bit. Does God love us? Because it's easy to look at the state of the world and go, I'm not sure God cares about humanity. There's so many broken things going on. There's so much bad stuff happening. There's so much evil in the world. I, I'm not sure that God loves us. Or even if you think sort of philosophically God loves us, you question whether he loves you. My family's messed up. My family tree, my dreams have not worked out. My plans have not come together. Does God even love me? Or even if you've resolved the idea that God loves you, one of the questions we wonder about is, does God even like me? Because we all know what it's like to love someone and not really like them, right? Toddlers go through this phase. You have a toddler, you're like, I love you. I don't like you right now, right? You know what that's like. You know what that's like to have those people that you're blood related to and you're like, oh, I love my uncle, but I really don't like him and I wish he'd stop forwarding me things and I don't want to see him at Thanksgiving, whatever. Like you, you've got people you love, but you don't necessarily like them. And, and so you sort of wonder, hey, does God who sees the whole universe when he looks down at me, does he even like me? Does he talk about me to the other angels or that are around up there or whatever? Like, is he, is, does he like me? That, that's a question. Does God love me? Does God like me? And then I guess the, the last piece of that is, does God even choose to be in relationship? Does he, does he, does he choose us? If he lined up the people in the world would he, would he, for the dodgeball game of life, would he pick us first? Or would he pick us at all? Or would he be like, fine, you can come in too, whatever. Is it, is it, is it actually a little more like that? Now that might kick up some things for you emotionally as you think about if God loves you, likes you, or if he chooses you at all. If you were chosen first for dodgeball or kickball, and maybe relationships have mostly worked out well for you in life, and things have kind of fallen into place, and you've kind of followed the path of life, and things are going well, the idea that God chooses you, and he loves you, and he likes you, you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense, because I kind of like me. Like, why wouldn't he? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm not bad. I'm not perfect. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. So if, if things have been working out well, the idea that God chooses you is not a surprise. Of course he chooses me. A lot of people chose me. 
But if things haven't worked out well, and relationships are broken, and you've got a lot of pain, and you've got a lot of backstory, and stuff has not, not gone the way you planned, and you're sitting here wondering, like, 10, 10 years ago, I, this is not where I wanted to end up, the idea that God would choose you may not, may not be right. You're sitting there going, oh, I, God chooses me? God loves me? He likes me? Does God say fine before he says my name? Is that, is that, how, it, is that how it works with, with the creator of, of the world? If I say God chooses you, you might think immediately just something kicks up in you in this little place, maybe not even a conscious thought. But if I say God chooses you and you go, there must be some mistake. There's no way that he would choose me. So Jesus tells a, a parable to illustrate this and, and, and to give us some clue as to how God and humanity, how they work together in relationship. And it's an interesting one, and I want us to look at it. It's found in Matthew chapter 22. We, we go to the Bible every week in this church, and we study it because we think it's the best way to live our lives is to follow after the Scripture and follow after Jesus as closely as we can. And so we go into it when we want to look at these issues and figure out what is going on in the world and why and what, what, what to believe and, 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 and all that stuff. How do we process the world around us? We go to the Scriptures. And in, there are four books that are specifically about the life and times of Jesus, the Gospels. And in one of those, Matthew, the first of the four in the New Testament, Jesus tells parables. Now, when Jesus tells a parable, it's not a true story in the sense that it's not like, hey, this happened the other day. It's a, suppose something like this happened. So he's giving this example of something that would happen in life that his audience would understand. And so one of the things we want to do when you read a parable is go, okay, what what, who are the details in there? What are the, what are the points he's trying to make? And who's he talking to? And who's he talking about? So let's start. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. We'll put it up on the screen. This is how it starts. And, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, all right, I need to stop. We only got like seven words in or something. All right. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, okay, who's the them? And what's the again, and, and what's he doing with the parable? Okay, so earlier in chapter 21, Jesus has this encounter with uh, the, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, and basically the high religious Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. These are the people that are coming to him and asking him questions. And multiple times from chapter 21 and 22, he's going to teach them and, and respond to them and give them some answers about life. And he's going to do it frequently with parables. He's going to tell little stories to illustrate how, how the world is. So he, 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 there's this crowd of religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day in the first century in Jerusalem, asking him questions. He answers in parables. And he says this one, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So he, he starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, when, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven what we need to think of is there is a, a, a different way of, of rule in the world. There is a, 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 a different uh, kingdom that is, that is at work in the world. It's, it transcends political boundaries, nation states, all of that kind of stuff, the stuff that we kind of fight about and, and, and war over lines drawn in the sand and, oh, you're this party and I'm part of this party. Uh, transcending all of that, there's this idea that, that God is at work in the world 
and that he is calling people to be citizens of that, to join him in his rule of the world, to join him in, in his mission for the world. So the way I kind of think of it is we're, we're kind of walking along and we're on a track, we're on a path in America. We, we, we see the world a particular way. We're in, we get drawn into the same things. We, we, we worry about jobs and the economy and the GDP and, our, and, 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 uh, and, and what it's going to happen with our kids and school systems and taxes and crime and all of these things. That's the, kind of the day-to-day. Am I going to pay rent, mortgage, all that stuff? And then it's like God is calling us to kind of raise our heads from that. And there, there's a frequency. There's like a, a, another layer of, of reality happening. And he calls us into that. It's like, hey, be in tune with his spirit. Now I'm going to give you mission and purpose and, and goal. And, and, and I've got something for you in this world. And you're going to be in relationship with me. He calls us out of the mundane and calls us into something higher. This is, this is the kingdom of, of heaven. Now, when you read a parable... You, one of the things you want to do is you look at the different people in the parable and go, okay, who do these represent? So most scholars will agree that in this parable, the king who sends out his son, the king represents God. Okay, this is God sending his son or throwing a wedding feast for his son. There's this big party. Um, and a lot of scholars will say, okay, that wedding feast he's talking about is at the end of, end of time, this wedding feast, the supper of the lamb that's kind of described in Revelation. Okay, so there's this wedding feast that's happening for his son. God sends out his servants to the streets to tell the people who are invited. Okay, who are the people that were invited? Well, the first people that were invited to, to be part of the Jesus movement really historically were the Jews. So these are the people that the invitation had already gone out. The servants went out there to remind them and tell them, hey, it's time to come to the wedding. But they already had the invitation. They knew it was coming. And so the servants are any messenger, the apostles, people like you and I, maybe preachers, but just any follower of Jesus who shares their faith. We are the messengers putting the word out there, to sending out, reminding people of the invitation that God has invited them. So he sends this message out, and the servants kind of go out there to get a head count of who's showing up based on the invitation that they received. But people who were invited originally, this original crowd, they don't want to come. They've, they've got their reasons. Oh, I'm just super busy. I got stuff going on at the farm, a lot of business. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to come to your event, church, kingdom. In this case, I don't want to be, come to the, the, the wedding party. Um, and they've got all these excuses. This would have been heard as a direct shot at the Jewish religious leaders of the day. He's telling them, hey, God is doing something here. And y'all are too busy. You don't care. You're going about your business. You're, you're, you're focused on every other thing except the real feast, the real party, the real celebration that's supposed to be going on here. Those Jews and the Jewish leaders, they were picked first, and then they reject Jesus. Historically, that's what happened. Most of the Jews in the first century rejected Jesus and did not choose to follow him. And, and to this day you'll see uh, uh, some animosity between Jews and Jesus. They'll say that he's not our guy. We, we're, not, we're not in on him. There's this animosity there, a, 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 a rejection of him. All right, continue on, verse 7. Let's look what happens. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So they had killed some of the servants, and the king retaliates and sends them people to to kill the people who had killed his servants and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding, which, side note, that's a bad setup for a wedding. I don't know what happened on your wedding day, but that's not great. Anyway, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the invitation goes out, and they would have heard this. The invitation to the Jews originally goes out, and uh, it didn't, it, they, they didn't like it. They fought. And, and then the king retaliates and actually sends people out and like slaughters the people who had slaughtered his servants and, and burned it down. Um, let me talk about that for a second, because if this is speaking about God's behavior in this, we need to understand this, that he, that he really slaughters some people, right? Um, this is very difficult for us, especially if our picture of Jesus is this like, lovey-dovey, sandal-wearing, hippie kind of guy who just walks around and says all the nice things all the time. If that's your view of God, that, oh, God and Jesus, they're just like super loving and cool and we're cool, bro, and buddy Jesus, that kind of idea, um, then you're not going to understand what he means here. And that you, you, that's just not going to sit with you. You're going to be like, okay, that seems like out of, out of character. Um, the same Jesus who heals the sick and brings good news to the poor also lets us know that his heavenly Father will dole out judgment to those who reject him. We need to understand that from this passage. There is the grace of God. It's the part we like to talk about. We'll talk about it uh, the Sunday after the election here in, in two weeks. There's the grace of God. That's a beautiful thing. There's also truth. There's, you are loved. God is loving, but God is also holy and just. You have to hold those things together to really understand um, the full character of God. Any picture of God that you have in your mind that is all love and no holiness or no justice is an incomplete picture of God. And this really does matter how you conceptualize God. A.W. Tozer says it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we might argue with that. We go, that's not the most important thing about me. No, I'm defined by all these other things. But this matters. The most important thing about us is, hey, if you think God is uh, angry and bitter, you're going to respond accordingly. If you think God is all just snuggles and kittens and and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to respond a a different way. It's important that we get the full picture of, of who God is. If you think God is hellfire, you will run away from him in fear. If you think God is all loving, you will eventually take advantage of that and you'll go, there's no judgment here, it's all good, and it's, everything is fine, and, and, and you will not ever pursue the holy life he's calling you to. So the king was rejected by those first, so he sends the servants out to broaden the invitation. He says, go to the main roads. The Greek word for that is talking about a crossroad that's in the center of town. So he basically says, go to the town square and invite everybody that's there. And it even says the good and the bad. This is not the most religious people. This is not the least religious people. This is everybody. The invitation goes out to all people. Hey, come to this wedding feast. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what background you come from, what language you speak, how rich you are, how poor you are. Go to the town square, grab those people, and bring them in. And and the servants do, and they fill up the the wedding feast. and, And a lot of people are there. All right, so the typical interpretation of this parable is this. God chose the Jewish people. And historically, he worked with the Jews, the Israelites, for thousand plus years. Works with them. God chose them. They rejected Jesus, so God went out and invited everybody else in. That's the Gentiles. That's all you you and I to this day. We were all invited into the wedding feast, and and basically, that's the story. 
that God has broadened the invitation from a, a narrow group of people and wants to be in relationship with everyone, so he, he broadens that invitation to all of us. And that is a great interpretation, except that there's a couple more verses here, and Jesus throws a curveball into that interpretation. Listen to this, starting in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the point. For many are called, but few are chosen. Again, that's an awkward thing on a wedding day. But there it is. The king sees one guest who's not wearing a wedding garment. That's weird. But understand that in that culture, to go to a wedding, you're going to put on your finery, right? It's it's a formal affair kind of thing. And if you remember, if you go back to verse 10, the, the, the servants, when they went out, they just grabbed people from the town square and brought them in. So it's not like everybody had a chance to go home and get dressed for the wedding. Furthermore, um, it's not like everybody could afford a, a fancy clothes for the wedding. The, the rich people had already been invited and they didn't come. So the, the next group down, there's poor people in there, they may not have good wedding clothes. But here's the detail that we're missing. What, what would have happened in, in that day is that the king or the host of the party would provide wedding garments for people who didn't have it. So everybody who walks in the door, if they don't have wedding garments, would be given those by the king. So the king is going to pay for the clothing for everybody that comes in. So the guy who's sitting there without a wedding garment on, it's not like he doesn't know. It's not like he didn't go through that door too, but for whatever reason, he rejected it. It's not, maybe he couldn't afford it, but it was going to be provided to him for free at no cost to him. The king was paying that cost. Everybody had that. You see, when people read this parable, the, the more conservative people like the idea that few people are chosen. There's the frozen chosen. There's the, oh, these people are the good people. And they're the ones that get to be with God. The more liberal people read the parable and they go, oh, I love the idea that God throws the kingdom open wide to everybody. Everybody gets in. Um, and, they, and they like the second part of that. But the third part of it really messes it up. God has thrown the door open wide to you, but you have to have him clothe you if you're going to be in. You have to have let him cover, clothe you and cover your sin. So there's three points to this, and then, and, then we'll, and then we're done. Number one, God invites us to come to him. And this is really good news to you, and it should be good news to you, especially if you feel like you're really bad. A lot of people struggle with Christianity or church or organized religion. They, they struggle with all of those things because they think that there's an entry fee that they can't pay. They think that, that you have to be a certain somebody to get in, and they're just like, I can't, I can't get in. Um, I'm too something. I'm, I cuss too much. I, I drink too much. I'm, I'm too angry. I, I, I gossip too much. I'm, I look at porn too much. I'm same-sex attracted. I, I watch those trashy shows. People think that the invitation from God is not for them. It's for other people, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually fit for me. And I understand that. 
And I think sometimes churches have fueled that fire. Churches have, have really uh, dropped the hammer on people historically. I mean, it, real bad in, in, in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, but e- even now um, have sort of given people the side eye when they're not dressed up well or, or, or those sorts of things. They, they've, they've, um, they've sort of put shame on people for you're not measuring up, and, and I understand that. Um, churches sometimes have been like a uh, function like the bouncer at the door telling people, well, you just, you just can't come in here. You can't be part of, of what God is doing. You can't be part of the kingdom, that kind of thing. Um, they've tried to function that way. And I think there's, there's abuses there, and I think there's things to repent of in, in, in the church sort of globally and historically. Um, but I also think um, there are going to be some people on the outside of the kingdom of God and they're just not going to come in. And there's going to be, uh, they're invited, but they're not going to come in. And there's going to be some barriers there for them. There's going, to be, uh, there's going to be some challenges. Some people are going to love everything else but God. They're going to. And you know this. You've experienced this. Some people will seek fame or money or, or you know, um, all sorts of relationships. And they will choose not to be in a relationship with God. Um, and, and that... And that is sad, and I think that um, I think there, there's it, it grieves the heart of God that people would choose to reject Him and, and walk away from Him. But I don't want us to miss the beautiful point here. God is inviting you. God is inviting the person sitting next to you. God is inviting the person in your household. God is inviting your coworker. That invitation goes wide, and you may feel unworthy. You may feel bad or broken or bored. You may feel all of those things because the truth is you were never picked for dodgeball. You were never invited to that party. You're always picked last. But God is inviting you. And let me tell you, if you're here in the bird for the first time or maybe you're watching online for the first time and you don't know why you're in church at all or you don't know why you're connected to this thing at all, let me just tell you, I I believe God's working on you. And I believe he's calling you. He's inviting you in. And you don't know it. You think you're here for another reason. You think you're here to meet someone. You think you're here because a friend bugged you and now you walked in the door or you decide to watch, okay, I'll watch that thing online you've been telling me about, whatever. You think that's the reason. But the reason, I would argue, the reason is that God is making an invitation to you and inviting you to be in relationship with him and and follow you. You're not here by accident. Number two, God's invitation will look different for everyone. This is a tough one. Uh, you may have some questions about this. We put up a number at the beginning of the, of the message. Um, if you want to text in your questions, if you've got any questions you'd like to, to ask, um, do that. And I'll, if we have time, I'll, I'll try to answer some at the end. But God's invitation will look different to everyone. Um, Jesus treats people equitably, but he does not treat people equally. So if you understand the difference, equitably would be like Jesus gives people opportunity. Um, he is gracious. He, he gives to people according to what, where their needs are. He doesn't give everybody the same thing all the time. And you see this all throughout the Gospels. When people are hurting and poor and he, he weeps over them, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, that, that people are on the struggle bus. And he sees them and he is, you see from Jesus, a lot of grace. He's very gracious to them. He's healing them. He's he's. Uh, giving them comforting words. He's working with them, right? And then there are other people who are proud and self-righteous, and he's, he's way less gracious with those folks. He challenges them. 
The rich young ruler is a great example. The scripture records of a man who's, we know he's rich, young, and he's ruler, so he's well-connected politically. He comes to Jesus, and what we find out from their interaction is that he's very moral. So he's a moral, good guy, doing very well in life, you know, that kind of thing. And he comes to Jesus, asks him some questions, and it says, the scripture says that Jesus loved him. It only says that five times in the Gospels, that Jesus loved someone. And it says Jesus loved this guy, and yet... That guy walks away from Jesus and decides not to follow him because what he thinks is Jesus is not giving him enough. It's not fair. It's not, Jesus does not treat him like he treats everybody else. He doesn't treat people equally. He treats people equitably. And so he, uh, he, he, he gives differently according to needs. And this is maybe hard for us to understand because we come from like a culture that really values fairness and we go, oh, you know, I think these things should, be, should work this way. And, and it's not fair um, that, that God treated uh, different people different ways. He historically treats different cultures differently. Uh, that's, that's hard to understand. But, the, but one thing we need to recognize is that the world is not fair. It doesn't really function uh, that way. Uh, God has not treated everyone equally. He actually reached out to the Jews first. Now, the idea was always that they're going to reach the world and bless the world, but he reaches the, the Jews first. He is effectively playing favorites in the Old Testament. And if you think nobody should play favorites, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, have, I have three sons, and they're my favorite over all the sons in the world. They're my favorite because they're my, mine, they're family. I like your kids too. But, but they're my favorite. And, and that's not, nobody would look at that and go like, man, why, aren't you, why don't you just love everybody equally? It's like, well, it's different. It's different. Um, and and, and there's, there's that kind of thing with, with God as well. Um, he doesn't treat everybody equally. And if we're going to say God should not play favorites, understand that that's one of the things we say that says more about us than it does about God. Because as soon as you say God should or should not, what is the should you're referring to? Who sets that standard? Who gets to decide? What, what universal standard of humanity are you appealing to on that should when you say God should do this, God should not do that? Usually what we're saying really is I would prefer it. My preference would be God do X, Y, and Z. I want God to function like I would function if I was God. That's kind of what we're, what we're saying there. So the invitation that God sends out is, is available to all who earnestly seek him. But it might look a little different to different people in different cultures and different times. God invites us all. The invitation is going to look a little different. And number three, our job is to respond to that invitation. I think that is the, the whole point of the ending of the parable, the, 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 way, that, the way that ends. Now, I'm going to bring up here what is basically a 500-year-old debate about God choosing versus our free will in that. And I just want to say that's been debated for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, and I'm going to solve it for you perfectly in the next two minutes. So don't worry. It's going to be great. Now, um, this, is, this is where I come down on that because people, people struggle with from a, maybe a more reformed tradition where they're going to say uh, that kind of sprouted up here in the last 500 years from, from Luther and, and then Zwingli and Calvin and then their followers. Uh, people are going to say um, that really, at the end of the day, God chooses this person but not this person. That's just the way it is, which is cool if you're the one of the ones God chooses. Less cool if you're one of the ones God has not chosen, right? That's like, that's not so great. Um, but you know, a lot of people would argue, well, how you feel about it's irrelevant. It's what God chooses to do. And I get that, and I love the, you know, God's strong, and it makes God look awesome and all that kind of thing. But I don't think it, 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 
interprets this parable well. I think there is this, this push-pull, this give-and-take here, where the invitation has gone out, and many, many people are going to be called. God's, God will woo them, but few are going to be chosen because they're not going to accept the garment that was offered for them. They are not going to accept what uh, God has done. The Scripture says, God desires that no one will perish. God desires that nobody goes to hell, that nobody is separated from him. And yet, some people are going to go. Some people are going to be separated from him. I believe if you earnestly seek God, you will find him no matter what culture you live in, what time you live in, what, where you are in history, no matter what. If you seek God, you will find him. But you know this, and I know this. There are people that just aren't interested at all. And I don't know why. I wish I did. I, the, the, the complexity of that, of their life story, of our free will and how God interacts with that, like that's, that's difficult stuff. But you know people and I know people that just aren't interested. And it doesn't matter. You could extend the most gracious invitation. God could, God could show up to them like freaking Zeus in, a, in the sky with firebolts and stuff. And they would be like, I don't know. I'm not sure I believe that. God could appear in angel, with the angel in a dream and freak them out, and they still wouldn't come to God. Like, you know that. You know people that are like that. And the, the hard truth is, everybody stands before God in judgment one day. And there will be people who are going to stand before God in judgment, and he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's going to cast them out, and they're going to be separated in hell for eternity from God. And that sounds harsh, and that's really uncomfortable because it may be somebody we know or maybe somebody we love. But that's the truth and we need to understand it. And we need to be real about it. That, that God is not going to override your free will. If you want to walk away from him, you can walk away. He's not going to lose you, but you are free to, you're free to go. That's, that's the, the reality. So the responsibility in this parable on us is this. Number one, we have to accept the king's garment. We have to accept that he clothes us, he, that, he, that, that he died for our sins, that he's going to make us right before him. He's going to make us acceptable in this party. We have to accept that. Now, why do we think of it in terms like a garment, like clothing? Well, actually, Galatians chapter 3 talks about, this, talks about it this way. It says, for in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We talked about that in weeks past, faithfulness. We, that, that is our responsibility. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ like clothing. I kind of compare it this way. I'm a, I'm a soccer fan, and I like to watch one of the weird rituals they have in soccer matches that after the match is over, players from opposing teams will switch shirts, which I think is gross because they've been wearing it the whole time, right? It's real sweaty. They switch shirts, so you kind of have this souvenir of I played against this guy and I got his shirt. I'm sure everybody tries to get like Lionel Messi's shirt or whatever, but so they switch shirts. And that exchange of this was mine and now it's yours, what, your, what is yours is mine, um, that is similar to what Christ does for us on the cross. He, he, uh, if, if we have a, a white shirt, let's say we're born with a white shirt or whatever, and we start sinning, we start adding to that shirt and we start staining it, and there's like no tide stick for the soul. There's no way to clean that quickly. Um, the only way that we will be righteous before God, that we will be clean, is that Jesus takes our shirt. When he goes on the cross and dies for us, he takes those shirts from us, and he gives us back his shirt, which was clean and righteous because he never sinned. 
And when we stand before God, we stand before him that way, wearing that clean shirt that Jesus gave us. We need to accept the king's garment so that we can be um, in, in the, 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 the wedding feast. And so if you've not been baptized, that's how you do it. This is anyone who's baptized, they, they've put on Christ. This is how we do it. If you've not been baptized, write on your connection card uh, that, that you're interested in that, the digital connect card that, we, that you can sign up, and we will talk to you about baptism. We can baptize you here this week. Um, we can do that. That's, that's the beginning step for you in the, in the kingdom. So that number one is that accept the king's garment. And then the second piece of this is that we need to live a, a cruciformed life. I'll explain that in a second. We need to live a cruciformed life. When you look at what Jesus says in um, Luke chapter 9, uh, there's this moment where uh, Jesus sort of challenges the crowds and um, it, it's rough and it's awkward as it so often is. And people are like, you know, they, they have this exciting moment, you know. Sometimes things are going really well, and then Jesus turns and says something really awkward to them or, or, or whatever. Um, and so you see this moment in Luke chapter 9, and listen to what Jesus says to the people who are going to follow him. He says, uh, Luke 9, 23, if, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone, leave that up on the screen for just a minute. Um, if anyone would come after me, that anyone is everybody. Like if anybody wants to follow, come after Jesus, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow, okay? So deny yourself, which means there's things inside of you that need to go. There's things that we need to set down and let go of. There's, and, and some of those things aren't going to be things just like I gossip too much or I cuss a little. Some of those are going to be things like Things that we think are core to us and are our identity. And, and, oh, this is who I am. I can't help it or whatever. And, 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 and Jesus is saying, no, following me looks like denying yourself first. You're going to have to start there. And then take up your cross. That's, a, that's a, a torture device. It's a crucifixion. Take up your cross daily. It doesn't mean you literally get on a cross every day. But, but some things are going to have to be sacrificed and some things are going to have to die. And then follow after him. See where Jesus is going and, and live a life where you walk after him. Um, that's what he's calling us to. The invitation might look different to everybody, but there are some similarities, and this is, this is part of those similarities. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put some things to death and follow him. That is not easy, but it's what we're called to. The bottom line is this. We are chosen by God. This is really good news. We were picked. It doesn't matter if we were picked first or in the middle, if we're picked last. Um, we, were, we were chosen by God. He's, he's calling us and saying, man, man we, come on in. Be part of my family. Be adopted into my family. This is really good news. Our responsibility is to respond to that and be faithful. Live that cruciform life. That, uh, scholars have sort of used that phrase to say our life should be cross-shaped. Going off of what Jesus says here in Luke 9, our lives should look like um, submission and service and sacrifice of laying down our wants and preferences um, and laying down desires for, for the good of, of others and to reach others. This is what God calls us to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the wedding feast that is coming, for the party that comes for those who are following you in eternity. Um, and God, I thank you for the invitation that you reach out far and wide, that it isn't just a particular elite class of people that are allowed to be in relationship with you, but it's 
all races, nationalities, cultures, throughout history, uh, languages, every tribe and tongue um, are able to come to you. No matter how good or bad we've been or what we've been up until today, uh, we have the opportunity to be in relationship with you and to start over. And so I thank you for that. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the reset button, I thank you for that and that opportunity. Um, God, may we acknowledge that, understand that, embrace it here this morning, and may we think about what are the steps we need to take to live that cruciform life, whether we need to be baptized into you or um, what are the steps we can take this week uh, around denial of self and, and, and taking up our cross daily and following you. Uh, reveal those to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.